Hello everyone and welcome to the fifth episode of With You In Mind. My name is Sarah Bullock-Chase and I'm joined by my co-pilot Lisa Upton. We are the co-founders of Brain Buddy and together we are going to be your podcast hosts. Now before we get started and introduce you to our special guest, we would like to give a big shout out to our sponsors of our podcast With You In Mind, the National Brain Appeal who are the supporting charity for the National Hospital of Neurology and Neurosurgery at Queen's Square in London. And the work they do is simply phenomenal. You can check them out at www.nationalbrainappeal.org. Now, I'm really excited for today's episode. It's a really good one. So let's cue that jingle and get this episode started. Yes, it's a really exciting episode that we have lined up for you today because we're joined by special guest Bridie. Bridie is Eamon's mum. Now, you might remember Eamon. He took part in our last episode of With You In Mind as our very first patient guest from the National Hospital. He shared with us his amazing story neurosurgery and Bridie joins us today as his mum and she's going to be sharing her perspective as a parent on how it feels to have your child embark on the journey of brain surgery and we're really excited to have her here. Well welcome Bridie and we wonder how are you? I'm fine thank you and I'm delighted that you've invited me. Um, it's, it's just so lovely to, to speak to you both again um, with all the amazing work that you're doing. So to be any little part of your wonderful venture is an honour. Oh, bless you. Thank you. I mean, it's great to have you here, like joining us today, because Thank obviously you. we heard from your son, Eamon, on our previous episode. And so now we really want to hear from you, you know, to understand your perspective as a mum. Obviously, I hope that whatever I may say may be of use. Um, I just think sometimes when you talk to different people, somebody might just say something that will trigger something and make you think of it in a different way, a different perspective. So if this can be of help to one person, then that's that would be wonderful. I'm sure it will, um, Bridie. And, and listen, this is the first time we've actually recorded the podcast with the parent of, so you're our first. So oh no, my goodness. no pressure. Oh, no, no pressure. No pressure. <laughs> no pressure. So look, we're going to take you right back to the start um, as part of this interview. We're going to take you back to the time when Eamon told us as part of his uh, recording that he first started experiencing these strange kind of sensations in his right arm when he was 13, just before mm-hmm. he got diagnosed with, with epilepsy. So we wanted to ask when he tried to explain these kind of tremor like things that were happening to him, what did you think of that? And, and what was your response? Uh, yes, it was quite sporadic. It would come in clusters. Um, so it wasn't all the time. Um, obviously, we went to the doctor and he had CT scans at the hospital and they just put it down to tremors. There was nothing else flagged up. Um, so because it was um, the age he was as well and because it was sporadic, we just thought he may grow out of it. Maybe part of his adolescence, puberty, you know, you never know. And it would be grown out of. So. Although it came and went, there were periods when it didn't happen for a long time, like 
a couple of years maybe and then it would happen again so I just sort of thought he would grow out of it to be honest that's interesting it, and I think often doctors put it down to that when it when it is of that age like 13 14 particularly like puberty I remember them saying that to my mum but did you have like a mother's intuition where you thought it might be something else or did you just believe what the doctors no, said I just believed what they said to be honest I mean yeah. we didn't go for a second opinion because it didn't get an, it didn't get present itself any worse it hadn't um developed that they were larger tremors or anything like that. So I just trusted them and I kind of thought it, we would grow out of it, maybe naively, but you, you trust what you're told, I think. Of course you do, yeah, particularly by the specialists. Mm. Yes, yes. So with hindsight, whether we should have gone for a second opinion and thought, no, this is going beyond the adolescent puberty years. Um, but to be honest, Eamon, incredible man that he is now he just got on with it and it and it never caused him any problem he still continued to play sport he still continued to go to watch Manchester United and it didn't impact in any way and um so he didn't make it seem like it was a big deal and maybe with hindsight we should have gone for more exploratory CT scans or whatever but I don't know you never know it's it's what if if I should have done that should I have done that but if it had have been brought to light at that age would that have impacted his growing up yeah. so maybe yeah. it was it the right time to have been diagnosed with epilepsy would that have affected him further down the line knowing that at a younger age mm. That's interesting, isn't it? It's that like looking back and thinking, well, what if? But if it wasn't really impacting his life, and like you say, mm-hmm. it just randomly occurred. And if it wasn't impacting him and the doctors are saying one thing, then yeah, you know, carry on. And is it just about growth? It's interesting. Mm. But then obviously, Eamon, you know, he was later then diagnosed with epilepsy after having, you know, a seizure on a flight. On the way back from Russia, he he told us about. Oh yes, he didn't do it. He didn't do it quietly. Mm. Uh, it was, if it was going to ha- um, present itself, it was going to be something a bit spectacular, wasn't it? <sighs> okay, so <laughs> no, no, nothing on the small side. Always go a bit. And I mean, we were you know so surprised it was on a flight on his way back from Russia. And so we wonder, you know, after that, he said he underwent you know a number of different tests and finally concluded mm-hmm. then that he had epilepsy. And I mean, we wonder, what was it then like for you? Do you remember how you felt when you were told then he had epilepsy? Or what was that like after that oh. experience of him having a seizure on the plane? Where were you? What was going oh, on? Oh, my goodness, goodness. I had this phone call from somebody um, mm. telling me that he'd had this huge fit on the plane. And I was like, no, 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 surely not. It must be somebody not playing some sort of sick joke, but, you know, somebody that was with him out there teasing me or whatever and I remember this man saying no just shut up and listen (laughs) because you you know you need to hear this oh my goodness your world goes upside down doesn't it Mm. oh yeah because there's it's you know it's like before and after your life goes Mm. upside down nothing's ever going to be the same again that you've had up to now um obviously the epilepsy was oh, are you sure it's epilepsy? Are you sure? You, you know, is it just a one-off? Can you be sure that it's epilepsy? And then when we were told, yes, yes, it's not just a one-off, it's not just a fluke, 
it is epilepsy. So that's huge. You've got mm. to then look up what epilepsy, what the effects, da 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 da, all the different things that you've you've you, you didn't know about. So then you become a sort of a mini expert, well, of sorts in a way. Um, and then when the scan revolt, um, found that there was something that was causing this, mm. then that's another huge thing. So yeah. it wasn't just the epilepsy, but to be told then that there's this lesion of sorts, we don't know what it is at this stage, but there is something on your brain. Well, once you hear that, well, you're just, obviously, you're, you're upset, you're crying, you can't pr- comprehend it. This is huge. This is, is it life-threatening? Is it, you know, everything goes through your head, doesn't it? So. And, what, and I wonder what's that like, because, you know, being the mother and also obviously wanting to be there for your child, hearing that, what was that like, balancing it? You know, it's your own emotions, but also well, being better than your child. It's mm. Oh, it's, 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 you know, if you could have it yourself, you would replace it for your child. You know, all that stupid thing goes through your head because you know that's not true. Your child is your priority. You're mm. here to, you bring them in the world to keep them safe and well. And, you know, it's out of your control to a certain extent now. And this thing has come along that you have no, you can't make it better. Yeah. Mm. I suppose there's a massive element of uncertainty that came with it all as well, which as a parent, I only imagine is just incredibly hard to deal with. How did you cope with that? Both you and um, Eamon's dad. And Pat, yes. Um, Well, you're just thrown into it, basically. You're just thrown into it. Your life is turned upside down. Um, We've three other children younger than Eamon. um, So how will that affect them? Um, Eamon still throughout wasn't making a big deal of it he wasn't oh I don't you know no I'm feeling sorry for myself nothing like that nothing at all he just not just got on with it he didn't want it to define him I think and um, obviously we had a couple of diagnoses not we were referred from our neurologist here we were referred to Bart's and we were under um a consultant up there and he would scan him every six months and he was of the opinion that if this whatever it was would start to grow that was it that was serious and he told us basically that because it was um sort of like a nebulous and there wasn't like a defined form to whatever it was but it wasn't defined enough that it couldn't be removed. So back we would go every six months. Um, Amy was at university at this stage. I remember um, he went to university that September following the, the fit in May. So that was doubly hard, leaving him at university. And you would see all these um, other parents crying, leaving their children and saying, you know, oh, I don't want to leave you. And I thought, flipping heck my son's got brain something on the brain and you're worrying about leaving your child you know there was so much going on but mm. he he was determined um <clears throat> the university bless them I'm going to shout out to St Mary's Twickenham they mm. were fabulous um they they were pre-warned they knew they kept an eye they were monitored him throughout and he didn't tell many people I mean I think the friends that he made I think I don't think he told them very much either. And it was only when he moved into accommodation with them that they were then told so that they would have to look out for him if he ever fitted or if he ever had these tremors. 
and they were brilliant. So we were under Bart's for many, many years. And we, we did have a second opinion and we did visit Queen Square at another stage. And I can't remember the consultant's name. This, this consultant told us, no, it's not gonna grow. It is what it is and it's fine. Nothing will happen with it. And this like was, whoa, this is not what we were led to believe. Um, should we stay with Queen Square and trust this doctor or should we err, err on the side of caution and remain with Bart's where they're going to watch it closely every six months? We stayed with Bart's again. <clears throat> with hindsight, his story may have been different if we had stayed at Queen Square or those, I can't even remember what year it was now. When came that transition from going from Bart's and trusting those people to making the leap and going to... National Hospital for Neurology and Neurosurgery. It was our fabulous neurologist at Southern Hospital, Mr. Everett, who then thought after many, many combinations, variations of medication, nothing was working. It had gone on so long that he's tried so many different combinations, you know, varying dosage. A, a, a huge long list of, of different medications were tried. <clears throat> and he thought, I'm going to refer you to... Professor Duncan. Okay. So it was his initiative that we then moved on to Professor Dun Duncan and his mm. wisdom. And I wonder what was it like actually for you having your son, you know, be put on different medications, different effects. You know, he told us about, you know, one of them reaching a certain level. And wonder what that was like that, you know, under, you know, with under one one care you know, being prescribed different things, trying to get a control, mm. but it seemed to not. What was that like for you as his mother as well? Well, it was, do we, do we try a different one again or will that cause further complications, side effects? It's just mm. such a, and I understand that every, every individual is different. So one combination of drugs will not suit another because each, each, each brain, whether it is a tumour or a lesion or whatever, is unique to that individual and they're coming with their different histories aren't they different yeah. medical histories um well it was scary mm. scary what would this medication do um throughout it was always i mean this mr everett at south end has been with him from day one he was with him when he was first diagnosed back at 13 we saw him then so he has carried damon throughout um and he's been um, a pillar throughout that we know that we could have always contacted him and he would have been there. He was our port of call. Um, and he would always discuss it with Eamon. Do you want to change? Do you want to? This is this. And he was totally open with him. Um, it was Eamon's decisions all the way along, whether he would change, whether he, he would up the dose, whether he would remain or try it a bit longer. Mm. We've sort of left it to Eamon. And so then even on then switching to the national on that, you know, was that also him wanting that as well? Yes. Yes. Mm. Throughout, it was always his decisions. Um, but to, to be on, once we were under their care, yeah. it was, it was full steam ahead, wasn't it? It was just a different ball game. Mm. Um, and when he was told that there was a possibility of surgery, again, huge huge mm. throughout all the appointments and 
throughout the um, consultations and the neuropsychological things at Chalfont. Um, it was a it's a long old process, isn't it? It's not for anybody venturing. Be prepared. It is a long process, supremely thorough, mm. but a long process. As you're saying that, I kind of think is it like a bit of a marathon? You know, it's not a sprint, it's a bit of a marathon. Take it in its stride, you know, be good to yourself, take care of yourself as you're going through it. Yes, there are different stages, but it is, it's that lengthy. It's, it's a lengthy process. Mm. And obviously you then have to wait for a bed to come up. I feel so bad for those people that have been impacted with COVID because they've their wait has been extended. So I'm blessed that we were pre-COVID, but hearing stories of how they weren't able to operate for so long listening in at your brain buddy meetings and hearing professor duncan speaking about not having the not being able to operate for so long those poor the poor people that are now in the system that still haven't had their life-changing surgery is heartbreaking mm. Mm. Bridie, can we can we talk to you about the surgery? Because when we chatted to Eamon's part of the podcast, he he was telling us that when Professor Duncan first spoke to him about the option of having surgery, I think at the words Eamon used, Sarah, correct me if I'm wrong, but he was like, <laughs> bring it on. I'm well yeah. up for this. This is a great challenge I want to take on. So he was like all for it and totally embracing of it. But how did you feel at the prospect of him having to embark on, on brain surgery? Mm. Well, just to say the word brain surgery scares the bejeepers out of me. That, that is huge, isn't it? Massive. And to think, gosh, mm. my son's had brain surgery. You know, you yeah. always make sort of a joke about, oh, well, it's not brain, you know, it's not brain surgery, you know, something. It's not, yeah. So mm. that, that is huge. Um, I, oh, gosh, you go through all the, the emotions. Is it is it a risk worth taking? I think fundamentally I mean Eamon probably alluded to this and said that one of the final appointments was um I think Pat my husband said you know if it was your brother having this appointment this surgery would you or your son would you go ahead with it and I think Eamon's probably said this to you and I'm probably repeating it but he was of the opinion well if it's good enough for a family member of yours then I will go go through with it fundamentally we had to support his decision mm -hmm. interestingly my husband didn't want him to have the operation ah. what about you what was your view did you want him did you not want him or were you in between I never didn't want him but obviously you fluctuate between am I advising him wrongly he did ask what we thought it was hard to give an answer okay. um, but like he said if he didn't do it he would be always thinking, what if? Mm. And I think with his strength, his strength of character, I just thought, whatever happens, we will, we mm. will do it together. Oh. And, and in, apart from, I was said about my husband, my Eamon is probably the one, the closest one to my my husband out of all the children and he's the one that wants to please him I think the most which sounds a bit cringy but and I thought I hope that you don't change your decision to please your father but he, he, again 
strength of character. He knew that he was determined and he would do it. How could you say, I don't think you should do it? Mm. He shared with us actually that moment when um, you and Pat met the surgeons, Anna and Andrew, and he said that he just, he felt obviously a huge sense of trust and belief in, in the operation. But he, he also told us that he sensed that at that point, he really realized and understood that you and his dad felt it too. Mm. Wow. That's interesting. Cause we probably haven't had that conversation. Oh. I did want to actually mention that appointment because mm. yeah. both Anna and Andrew, they seem to have all the time in the world. There was no rush with that appointment. They could have sat there. It felt as if they could sit there for hours if we needed them to. And I thought, wow, you're probably the two busiest people in this place and you can give us that time and answer any questions, however stupid, and go over in exact detail what was going to happen at each stage. And I just thought, I think that's probably the longest appointment we've ever had. And you think they're the, probably the busiest people and for them to be able to give that time and care to prospective patients is just incredible. And I think that that's, that's not just for us, but for everybody else, that's just incredible. Yeah, yeah. it really is. And it we, is. we speak from a place of being completely biased, but they're, yeah. they're just an amazing team, aren't they? At the national, yeah. they, they do oh have all the time in the world for you. You're yeah. not just rushed through an appointment in and out, you know, which you, often get in other you know you've all been we've all had hospital appointments and doctor's appointments and you don't always feel as though you're heard or you're in and out or your time's up mm. but with that meticulous detail telling you everything what you may expect what might what might be the outcome what might and so on there was no rush with that appointment mm. it was they were they were incredible oh well that's lovely to hear really because it is I suppose thinking you know, it is such an important appointment that you're at that point of mm. trusting or it's that question of, am I going to trust these people to take care of my child? I think and that's so actually, fundamentally it. Yeah. Do you trust them enough with your child's life? Mm. Yeah. And I think you've got to come to that decision. They wouldn't be recommending surgery unless they believed in it. Yeah. And yeah. I think that's key. They wouldn't recommend it falsely. If you think about it, the amount of tests that are done to see whether it is the right treatment for you as well. Yes, yeah. at different stages throughout, yeah. Yeah. before, during, after. Mm. Yeah, I think it's trust at the end of the day. And I just think they know what they're doing. Mm. I mean, like you say, the National is such an amazing place. No wonder it's... So, uh, wasn't it ranked it's now but, just voted yeah yes no wonder <laughs> of mm, course yeah so yes if you can put your trust into them yeah and so then you know we wonder after that you know after that decision then came about and he made the decision and it is you're saying about putting your trust then when it came to to it how did you feel with him going into hospital you know, of needing to put those things in place, you know, did you take him there? Tell us a bit about that, of what your experience was like of him then going into the hospital. And well, we found out, sorry, we did, we found out about a week before he had that all important call. I mean, we were waiting and people would be saying, any word about the, oh, any, 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 if you heard anything, it would go on and on and on. So you need a bit of patience with this. Mm. Um, 
it was about a week before and I remember it was um February the 14th I remember that because that's Valentine's Day um, I thought that was quite significant um and I think it was a Wednesday and I think the weekend before I thought oh is he having doubts he wasn't as confident so I think it started to hit home for him and mm. um, Pat took him up the day before he had assessments and oh because of the the position of it was it was behind the primary sensory strip in his brain so the risks were that his speech would be impaired or affected and his right hand loss of use so that was what the the, the two risks that would be impaired mm -hmm. um, so he was assessed he went down the day he went there the day before uh, I was at work that day so his sister and I went up after work that evening um, we didn't stay up there we live in South End which is about an hour's train journey away don't know whether with hindsight we should have stayed but it didn't it didn't didn't matter mm. um, we left him there overnight um, obviously set off early the next morning um, saw him went before he went down for surgery had to be there had to be there before he went down to surgery that was a no no brainer mm. um, we were there right until he went down and he was put to sleep met the anaesthetist and everything and the anaesthetist he, he offered to record the the operation I don't know Eamon's probably told you this as well Eamon was all for that he wanted to see his operation filmed he wanted to <laughs> It. he wanted to see wow. what was being done um unfortunately it wasn't recorded but that's neither here nor there um went down surgery was about seven hours didn't know what to do with ourselves first thing we did we went down to the cafe um and we saw andrew mcavoy in the, in the cafe and that's just <laughs> yeah how are you here but obviously later on i realized that he doesn't come in until the you know at the right moment, all the, the other superb medical team are prepping him and getting it underway. So mm. see him there, that threw me a bit in his scrubs and all this, yeah. Um, I was all over the place. I didn't know what I was doing. I think I even dropped the tray of tea and whatever we were having. I was all over the place, didn't know what to do with ourselves. Um, went for a walk around outside, couldn't focus, couldn't, had to get back to the hospital. You know, it's a bit surreal. It is totally surreal. Yeah. Um, waited by where he was in where we where we left him then we were told everything was fine fabulous and then we just see him briefly in the recovery room where there is somebody watching him all 20 for the full 24 hours isn't there somebody i see you inside, mm. yes yeah watching meticulously so we were allowed in for a few minutes and the relief to see him yeah you can't explain that real day it is one of the toughest days of your life. He came out. That was it. That's all we wanted. We wanted to see him at the other side. That was it. Mm. Very emotional. Different to see him. So his response to all the assessments and he was really not responding well. He couldn't speak. He couldn't recall words. Um, he wasn't able to follow commands. I remember them asking him to put his finger on his nose and he couldn't even do that. And you're thinking, oh, my goodness, is this going to be what he's going to be able? That's his extent of 
So that was horrible. It was very emotional that day. But the nurses on the Molly Lane Fox Ward, you know, they were fabulous. They were saying, no, it's fine. This is to be expected. But that was horrible to see that he wasn't able to respond and speak. And oh, so we thought that was, had we done the wrong thing? Oh, yeah, that was horrible. Oh, wow. That is, I mean, that sound, that does sound terrible, like witnessing that. But I wonder there as well, having that reassurance of the nurses saying, no, this is okay. It's like that challenge of, okay, yes, but I'm not used to seeing my child like this. You know, that, oh. I think what's interesting is like, you describe it as like a roller coaster of emotions. And look, we've interviewed so many parents, including our own about the day, the journey. And it's almost like you have that immense sense of relief when you see them come through it, which is um, quite quickly followed by just complete worry because, Things are, you know, when your brain has been messed around with, pardon the the expression, but it comes with consequences, doesn't it, initially? And there is that immediate two, three days of going, oh, my God, what is happening? Yes, I mean, you couldn't, you know, do anything independently for a few weeks, probably. You know, you'd have to dress him and, you know, wash him and all this. Well, maybe not, not that long, maybe only about a week, but... And you think, oh, my goodness. But then when you do think about it, that brain has been pulled around, bruised. Mm. It needs time. It needs yeah. time. Fortunately, we've come out the other side and we're able to <clears throat> realise that that is the process. And so obviously you've shared with us, you know, just that bit of the immediate coming out. But then what were the next few days like that initial, you know, recovery within the hospital? And then we'll obviously want to hear as well about the longer term of it as well, how it was. Yeah. Um, because speech was um, one of the areas that may have been impacted, the speech um, was assessed constantly. Um, he was then arranged for speech therapy to happen when he was discharged at home. Um, and his speech, I think, just took time. Mm. It just took time, and that little bit of speech therapy may have helped him along the way but um, as you know now he's you wouldn't know if there was any problem at all I mean he does have a, an odd bit of recall and word word retrieval um, but I mean he's what his impact is now he was in hospital for about a week slowly he would be able to walk down to the restaurant so there was progress you could see progress was being made so that was encouraging I think you just needed to see these little small steps to reassure yourself that um, it was going in the right direction. Mm. I mean, it's a lot, isn't it, as a parent to to, to go through? I, I I can't imagine, right? I can't imagine. Mm. But what what was the hardest part of the whole thing for you? The hardest part um, was leaving him that day at the operation and handing him over to people whose life he had. His, his life was in their hands I think that was the toughest bit and then seeing how poor he was the next day and of course the all the emotions are coming out you're emotional because you're tired yourself and I know it's not about you but obviously your your emotions are all over the place so I think that was the hardest part seeing him at his lowest once we got him home um, he came home and stayed with us for a few weeks so he didn't go home to his flat although he does have a he did have a a um 
a friend that was that was sharing the flat with him. So he would have he needed to be at home um, because he needed more or less full time care, yeah. and he was getting sick. He we we had anti sickness tablets, um, but then he was in a bit of pain that following weekend. So we did go back to hospital, South End Hospital. We rang one 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 and we rang the ward, and they said if we didn't have any if we had any concerns, um, take him to A and E. Once my husband heard that, we were straight to any, um, and he was kept in overnight. And they did have a, they did do a CT scan and sent the results up to the national, and they weren't duly concerned. So he was discharged, um, and slowly but surely, his mm-hmm. symptoms improved, um, and he slowly became more independent. He was able to go out. So, yeah, in, in quite a short space of time, actually. Mm. Yeah. How long? How long? Did Within a week, I suppose. Time. He was he was able to go out maybe the following weekend, and you think, wow, so quickly, mm. and you think, oh, you're doing too much too soon. No, he needed to be. He needed to do that. I mean, I remember he attended our talk and that was probably only yeah. six to 12 months after his surgery, wasn't it? And I was like, wow, this guy's doing well. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's determined, isn't he? He's uh, He I really think- is, yeah. And yeah. I mean, that that's testament to obviously his upbringing, I think, Bridie, yeah. you and Pat, and, and, but he is, he's, he's, he's inspirational. I don't know where he gets it from. I don't know where he gets it from, to be honest. Just saying yeah. one more um, When we left... Um, the hospital and he was discharged it was a bit scary because you're then you don't have these nurses that will be at your that will deal with whatever happens and it's it's you that's got to be watching him and making sure that he's okay that was scary when you come out of hospital um and you felt like ah what do we do is it okay is this okay even washing his hair like where the stitches were. Are we allowed to wash his hair? Are we allowed to touch these stitches? Are we allowed to put shampoo on these stitches? You know, even little things like that. And I think since we've been in, I think there's been an impact that they've got like a, I think you were instrumental in a little sort of levers pack, so to speak, with answering questions that that seem trivial, but you've got them at home and you think, am I doing the wrong thing? So it's things like that that would be beneficial for parents leaving and then taking the child, their child, their baby home mm. and knowing that um, what's, what's normal and what's not. Because at, when we did leave, it did feel a bit, oh, now what do we do? Mm. So I think you've been instrumental in bridging that gap and having information booklets that can be of use. I bet it all seems a little bit like a, a memory, a, a dream rather, when you look back on it now. But if you could just describe the experience in just a, I don't know, a few words or how, how would you describe it all looking back now? Oh, wow, it's huge. It is huge. I think his strengths probably carried us as well, in a way. We knew that he was a strong character and whatever the consequences, we would deal with it. Um, it was wonderful to meet um, 
and trust these these experts and life-changing people that it's just their job but to us it's life-changing and huge I don't know it's just huge you've got to put your trust in them and to have faith in it really Mm. just have faith in the in the in what they tell you and don't expect too much too soon but they they don't tell you to expect too much too soon it's just you that needs to stop and take a step and think no this is too soon so just go with their advice I think just put your trust in their in them and so obviously you know Eamon shared with us that now he's actually been seizure free and you know reduced medications and even actually now come off of um you know being referred through the national you know it really is that you know it's had such an important you know change on thinking of where it started and then where also he is and where you are now I suppose we wonder what would your advice be you know to other parents of people who have epilepsy and who might be considering surgery what would your advice be to them my advice would be whatever the people at Green Square say (laughs) they know what they're talking about I know not everybody's under Queen Square and I understand that I think and obviously every case is different obviously Eamon's epilepsy wasn't as severe as many 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 people and I appreciate that he wasn't on the spectrum of things he was had very mild epilepsy Um, he was able to function he was able to work Um, and for people that have it's much more life debilitating then I can't begin to know how they feel but from our perspective we were fortunate we were lucky the day that we were referred to Queen Square it was just life-changing it was huge um and now like you say it does feel like a while ago and I've kind of days go and I don't and I don't think about it whereas before it was constant will he be okay is he all right and now I don't even like to say that he's seizure free because I'm very oh I don't want to jinx it I know that sounds really stupid but if ever came the day that he had another fit gosh I don't know what would happen but we're under we're under the experts and we would trust them implicitly now Mm -hmm. I mean I know it's easy to say now because we've had a successful outcome Mm. Um, listen to all the advice get as much different opinions from different people and take the lead from the person that is needing the surgery if they are anyway unsure postpone it because we were told even up until the day of the surgery even as we were even as he could go down to surgery he could say stop Mm. we were always given that option that he could say no I'm not ready and that was always at the forefront of their care. If the person isn't ready, we can, we can come back to you in a few years. So it's never now or never. Mm. So if you don't feel quite ready, just pause and they'll take you when, you when you are ready. I think listen to as many people, hear different opinions. Something might be said that you hadn't thought of before. And ultimately, it's down to trust in them 
at the end of the day with your your child mm. I suppose it's it's making that decision because it is a choice at the end of it you know in a lot of with this type of surgery it's a choice at the end of the day so it's trusting yourself trusting the others yes mm. I think um people are going to come to it from different viewpoints different yeah. Yeah. their journey is going to be different than anybody else's obviously um family situations may impact it um there is no you must do it mm. because different um dynamics different families um if if the family was opposed to it if they really didn't want it or if siblings were um concerned mm. you know it's it's there's no one one setup is there yeah. it's all individual to each case um and that's interesting because I think that reflects in essence what say epilepsy is as well you know what you said it draws us back to the beginning when you talked about even the medications not one works for everyone not everyone has the same types of seizures not everyone responds to certain medications always it's very individual mm, kind of a yes throughout. yes so Mm. obviously that's that's the expertise of these people that can take all these varying individuals from different walks of life different backgrounds they're coming at it from different viewpoints different histories and giving the advice that's appropriate for them Bridie listen we could literally talk to you all day because it's so interesting to get this perspective from a parent but I just want to finish up by asking you one final question and that is that I suppose they say, don't they, that our experiences in life shape us. They quite often go on to define us and just teach us lessons, I think. So we know from Eamon how this has changed his life. From your perspective, what have you learned from this experience and what will you take forward? Oh, my goodness. Um, from having your life like upside down, never be the same again, to having this wonderful result and forever being grateful um forever grateful to those people that just do it as their day job i mean goodness me they're, they're the heroes in this world um never ending thanks for what's been done thankful that we can hopefully be of use to other people and help guide them i just think Eamon has always wanted to give back um, he's used, I mean, through Brain Buddy as well, you've been incredible. Um, it was another patient that was on the ward at the time whose wife highlighted me to your, your wonderful Brain Buddy and she, social media savvy than I am, um, and she was the one that had linked me up thing or told me about you. And I don't know, it's just, it's just incredible the journey that he's been on. And I'm just so beyond proud of him mm. just beyond proud I mean he's he's fundraised for the brain appeal you you said earlier it's not a it's a marathon which is ironic because he's run two marathons as you know to raise money for the brain appeal and I don't think he's going to stop there um it's a funny I know not everybody is under the national but it's uh, it's it's such a was so fond of the place and although we've been discharged as such um I don't know whether I've said it to you before but 
to have the link still with the place because you've got such fond memories, not not memories, that's not the correct word, but you've got a, a link with it. And although you know that you're just one of many patients that go through the system, well, I'm not the patient, but Eamon goes through hundreds, thousands, you, you don't want to be clingy to it, but you, you, you still want to appreciate it. And you've got that incredible fondness for the place that I don't think will ever go. And I mean, you say you don't want to be clingy, Sarah and I are hugely clingy. I mean, this is why we do this. We, we, we don't ever want to let the place go. But, you're yeah, absolutely- but, but it is such a life-changing experience. It's yes, such it's a momentous you know, thing in life. And, you know, as time goes, obviously more time goes from when, say, people have had it. But that was such a key point for everyone, it sounds like, you know. And so that life-changing experience, it really does mean something. Yes, and I think every so often to think back at it and to just to think, gosh, did we actually go through that? And it is huge. It is huge. The world is turned upside down. Oh, fabulous. Thank you so much. Thank you, Bridie. Oh, you're so welcome. Thank you, Bridie, for sharing your story and your perspective. Hopefully, if you are the parent or carer of someone that is contemplating having brain surgery, or maybe they've already had brain surgery, then that chat might have helped you and you may have been able to resonate with it in some way. Join us next time when Sarah and I will be joined by another special guest who will be sharing their journey of neurosurgery with us. As a reminder, you can keep updated on our latest podcast by following us on all social media platforms. Until then, stay safe, stay well, and stay tuned.